Hello, church family. Thank you for joining us for another message from Res Life Holland. We hope this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus and empowers you to live the life God has for you. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. As usual, I'm excited about what I have to share with you guys today, and I'm actually interested in seeing where this goes because the more I prepared for this message, the more um, God kept laying different things on my heart and... um, And I know that there must be a reason for it. We were talking last week about uh, our identity. We were talking about purpose. We were talking about power. Uh, The Bible says in Romans 23, 7, and we read this last week, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And we were talking about the power of our identity, recognizing who we are in Christ. And when we allow ourselves to be defined by what Christ says about us, then we are fulfilling our identity. But when we believe something other than the truth of Scripture about ourselves, we cripple ourselves. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6 said, the weapons we fight uh, with are not weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. That's the, what's the knowledge of God? That's the truth. And we take captive every thought and to make it obedient to Christ. How do you make a thought obedient to Christ? You align it with his word, and you reject those thoughts that do not align with his truth. And we will be ready uh, to punish every act of disobedience for once the disobedience is complete. Anyway, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. Ephesians 4 through 1 says this, Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The Bible tells us to walk worthy of the calling for which we were called. Now, I think some of us, when we hear that, what we hear is earn the calling. Be worthy of it. As if a coach came and said, run worthy of of first place. In other words, go out and perform until you achieve. But that isn't what it says. It did not say, therefore, earn a calling. That isn't what it said. The Bible said, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. You know what that says? You are called, period. Do you realize you're called even when you aren't walking worthy of that call? Do you realize you have a calling? God has given you that calling. He is not telling you to earn it. You know what? If you behave to a certain level, then I'll call you to something. And meanwhile, as long as you aren't behaving, you don't have a call. That is not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says you have a calling. Already. You've been called. 
God did not wait. The Bible says while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not wait for us to get everything right to give his life. He has called us, given us a purpose, period. You don't have to earn a calling. You already have one. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, and I'm reading from the Amplified, it says, For we are his workmanship, his own masterwork, a work of art, created in Christ Jesus, reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, ready to be used for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand, taking paths which he set, so that we would walk in them, living the good life which he prearranged and made ready for us. God created us for a purpose to live a, a, a certain type of life. He calls it the good life. We are created to, to achieve our callings. And we wonder, what, is it, what, is it, what would it be like to feel fulfilled? Where does fulfillment come from? And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. But I'm going to go, and I think I closed last week or near the end of what I was talking about last week. I talked about how many of you have ever tried to pull a screwdriver, a screw out with pliers. You know, where, where it's like, it's the only tool I have, but I'm going to try to get it done. I think a lot of people, that's how they feel about life. It's like, man, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying, but nothing seems to fit right. But God has called us. Acts chapter 26 verse 18 says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So God has called us out of darkness, away from the power of Satan, to receive forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified. To be sanctified is the Hebrew word hegiadzo. This is what Strong's Concordance says it means, to render acknowledged to be venerable or hollow, to separate from profane things and to dedicate to God, to consecrate things to God, to dedicate people to God, to purify, to cleanse externally, to purify by expiation, free from the guilt of sin, to purify internally by renewing of the soul. So to be sanctified is to be holy. How many of you have ever heard people talk about Christians living a holy life. What does it mean as a Christian to be holy? The Bible describes it as sanctification. The, the term I, I tend to go to in my mind when I want to understand the concept of holiness is the, the, the term set apart. It has a special purpose. 
It's not ordinary. It has a special purpose. Now, there are two types of set-apart items. There's the decorative soap in the guest bathroom. And then there's the sterilized gauze in the first aid kit. And here's what I'm thinking. How many of you guys ever remember that, like, decorative soap that looked like fruit? Have you ever been to a house that had, had that, or maybe you grew up in a house that had, like, there was this soap in a tray? And if you were a kid, it was the cardinal sin to use that soap to wash your hands. Because it was set apart. But for what? Like, nobody ever used that soap. Like, it was set apart to just be set apart. Like, we never got to use it. It wasn't like the, the guest towels. Now, those were set apart for when the guests arrived. At least the guests got to use them. But the soap, nobody ever gets to use. It was just the soap. The decorative Soap that was just apart and separate and, and special. You realize there, there, there has been as long for centuries, as far back as the, the third century, Christians were confusing what it meant to be set apart. There is an amazing story of Simon Stylites. He was a Christian monk, who in his desire to be set apart, sat on a pillar for 37 years. He thought he was setting himself apart and therefore pleasing God by separating himself from everything. Now, we look at that radical Example, and hopefully, none of you are like, oh, sounds awesome. We recognize, wait a minute, that, that is extreme. But many of us still have this idea that my distance from everything and everything else is what makes me a more holy Christian. My dad tells a story when, when we were living in Mexico as missionaries, and he was outside of the church where, where we were working, and he said he's out there doing lawn work. And so it's, it's Mexico, it's hot, he's out there. Um, I don't remember what he said he was wearing. He might not have even been wearing a shirt. But he's out there mowing the grass, cutting the grass, and this couple walk by. It's 90 plus, 100 plus degrees they're wearing full suit. She, he's got a full suit on. She has a floor-length dress. Dark colors. She's got the beehive hairdo way up hot top. He's wearing a tie. And they come up and they see the sign near where he's working that there's a church there. And they, they say to him, so are you a Christian? And he's full of dirt and just turns around and says, Yeah! And they said, are you holy? 
He says, absolutely, I'm holy, sanctified by the blood of the Lamb. And they look at him and go, no. I mean, are you holy? And he looks at him and he says, we are holy. She doesn't wear any makeup. And I don't wear bright colors. And, we, and they start to list all the things that they did to be different. All of these things. Are you holy? And he starts to understand. They're not talking about a scriptural set apart for the work of the ministry. They're just setting, do you keep a bunch of rules? Are you holy? They weren't sitting up on top of a pedestal for 37 years, but they found something similar where they thought their value came from their distance. What does it mean to be holy? Is, is a Christian holy because of how long their list of don'ts is? You know, a lot of people grew up defining their Christianity by how many things they didn't do. I don't know if any of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but I don't know how many of you have been around that Christian. Well, we don't do this and we don't do that and we don't do this. Is that what it means to be holy? Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says, We know that our old selves was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. No longer slaves. That is the goal. I think about and I'm not trying to pick on this in particular, but I think because we understand the concept of addictions, chemical addictions, I think that cigarettes are a good example. When someone is addicted to cigarettes, we could even use the term they're enslaved. Because they may want to quit, but they struggle. They're enslaved to that sin. It pulls them. And it damages their body. But they still want that. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever kicked a nicotine habit. But does it feel good to be free? Yeah. It's, it's amazing to be free. Now, if somebody said, hey, guess what? I, I've got this perfume you can use. And if you use it, you won't smell like cigarettes anymore. You can go back to smoking. And with this, you won't smell like smoke anymore. How about it? Who would go back to slavery? For there was no. That's, that's more of the picture that God gives of sin. Is that it is the goal of the Christian life is to be free from the slavery that sin brings. 2 Peter 1, 
2 through 4 says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God has given us how many things? All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Our goal is to partake in God's divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Our holiness, our avoidance of sin, is an escape from the enslavement of sin. We are free from the bondage of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him to, who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. We have become his righteousness. We are separate from sin. It's not about a list of don'ts. My Christian identity is not in how many things I avoid. When, when we define our Christianity by the things we avoid, we're as effective as that man sitting on a post for 37 years. What did that accomplish? The Bible says that we were called for the work of the ministry. What work of the ministry was he doing at the top of that pole? He missed that part. He says, hey, I'm, I'm going to be set aside. Now, remember, I used the example of the soap, the soap that never gets used. But then there's also the sterilized gauze in the first aid kit. Now, that is set apart. Why is it set apart? So that it won't be contaminated. Because when it comes time to use it, if that gauze has been open and exposed to dirt and grime and, and gets put on an open wound, well, then it causes an infection instead of avoiding it. The gauze was set apart so that it would be functional when it was used for its calling. We are set apart so that we can be functional. Not so that we can be perpetually on a pedestal out there avoiding everything, so that we can tell everybody who we work with how many things they do that we don't. Man. To me, when our identity as a Christian comes from what we don't do, people don't understand. They just think we're, we're holier than now, we're goody-two-shoes, 
But when, when we have set ourselves apart so that we can better serve, there's a difference. When your coworkers look and say, you know, they, they're not, they never seem to lose their temper and cuss out the boss. And they never seem to cuss out anybody else who works here. And it's not because you're going around like giving everybody a dirty look every time that they say something they shouldn't. But you know what happens? Someday, when they need someone to talk to, they say, you know what? I can talk to them because they don't talk trash about everybody else. And they go to you and they say, you know what? I, I need someone to hear me out. And I've observed that you're the only one who doesn't talk trash about everyone. So I assume I can speak to you and you're not going to turn around and stab me in the back. Because everyone else around here, I've witnessed them stab each other. How, I don't dare speak to them. You were set apart for a purpose. And when that purpose comes, then fulfillment comes because God, He is, he is so amazing at knowing what is coming and planning for it, and setting us up. I call it invisible progress. We don't know what needs, what situations will be in our workplace three weeks from now. But God knows. And when we are willing, He will set us up. I remember a, a particular job I had. I, I won't get too detailed just in case somebody's listening. But I, I, worked, I worked in a very secular, regular office space. And we had um, a large variety of, of people working there, including a gentleman who in his spare time would dress up as not a gentleman. And every time we'd have like a Halloween thing, he'd come full drag every time. You know, when, when you would look at the lifestyle he led and the, the lifestyle that I led, you would have thought we were on opposite polar because we were. We just didn't seem to have much in common. And I never partook of his lifestyle. There was always a difference in the way we behaved, but the day came when his partner died, and to my surprise, he came up to my desk, sat down, and he said, you know, hey, I, I need to talk, and he starts going through what's going on. He says, we need to do a funeral. Would you be willing to come and, and do this funeral? And I learned the story. He was a pastor's kid who had turned his back on God when something had happened. And what he wanted now was to find someone 
who could, he remembered what he grew up with and was looking for someone who had lived that in a non, like, irritating way. We are set apart for a purpose. Not just to be special, but so that we can go on a wound on the day that something is needed. And God will, just trust me on this, God will set you up. He can set us up so what we could have never imagined. James 1.27 says, To be pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What does it look like to be unspotted from the world? 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 12. This is Paul writing. And he says, hey, I wrote to you in a previous letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Then verse 10. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral. Like, you didn't get it. It hadn't happened yet, but I can just see, you know, like, you wanted to go climb up on a pole and just sit there and be different. He says, don't, no, don't avoid everyone of this world or the greedier swindlers. In that case, you would have to leave the world. You weren't called to leave the world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, or idolater, or slander, or drunkard, or swindler. Don't even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? But are you not a judge to those inside? We have gotten things confused in Christianity when we decide to go sit on a pillar and isolate ourselves. Paul says... The purpose of being set apart isn't to avoid contact with the world. He says, now let me tell you those from, with whom you do need to avoid contact. He says, when a Christian tries to excuse ungodly behavior as acceptable and desirable, that's who you avoid. He says, when a Sinner sins, that's a sinner sinning. We're not supposed to be surprised by that. But when someone says, hey, I'm a Christian, but I've decided I'm not going to live my life to please God, I've decided let's just do this anyway. We don't care. He says that's dangerous. The hypocrisy of, of Christians who say, oh, I claim to live to please God, but I clearly don't live to please God. And I want you to consider my sinful behavior as acceptable. Knowing that it's wrong, but choosing to live as though it's right. 
There's a difference. It's not talking about a Christian who struggles, who makes mistakes. Paul himself says, you know, the thing that I want to do isn't the thing that I do, but I do the thing that I don't want to do. Was he telling people to avoid even contact with him? It's not, it's, it's not that, that as Christians we can never struggle. But he says, hey, that Christian who just says, hey, I know this is against Scripture, but I'm just going to pretend that this just doesn't matter. I'm just going to embrace sin. He says that person who claims to be following Christ but is also embracing a lifestyle of sin, he says that's the person who's dangerous. That's the person you need to, to get distance between. Your identity doesn't come from what you avoid in the world. Your identity comes in Christ, recognizing that you are the righteousness of God in Christ. And your pursuit of holiness, set-apartness, of purity, comes from a desire to please God, not a desire to show off. Not a desire to compare yourself against others and win. When you seek in your own life to do what is right and what is pleasing to God, there is value. Yes, there is value in avoiding temptation. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good morals. It's important who we spend our time with, who we grow close with, who we give influence in our lives. Ephesians 4.1, therefore, walk worthy, I beseech you, walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. Mark 1.4. 14 through 15 in the message says, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the message of God. Time's up. God's kingdom is here. Change your life and believe the message. The message, what is the message? The message is that forgiveness is available, that righteousness is available, not through striving to live perfectly, but through accepting his forgiveness. It says, change your life and believe the message. When we accept that, it will change our life. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We weren't created to be the, the, the fruit-shaped soap that's just, oh, over there, apart. It's just always apart. Its entire value is in that it's never used. That's not us. We're not to put ourselves up on a 
pedestal and stay away from everything. We were created for good works. God wants us to live free of this enslavement of sin so that, like the first aid, when there is a wound, we can serve without contaminating that wound. There is fulfillment that comes in fulfilling your purpose. There was a psychologist by the name of Abraham Maslow, and he developed something called the hierarchy of needs. And he said basically that as he studied humanity, he said, we all have a hierarchy of needs. Our most basic needs are for food and water. I think we might have a graphic for that. The psychological needs for food and water. He says, then above that, you have a need for safety. Security, safety, not to live in, in danger of, of loss of life or limb. Next, he says, you have a need for belonging and for love. This would be intimate relationships and friendships. He says, then above that, you have a need for, for self-esteem, the feeling of accomplishment and prestige, and then at the very top, self-actualization, achieving one's full potential, including creative activities. Now, What's interesting is that when we look at, at this and we think about life as God gives it, and he talks about this, even Maslow said only 2% of people reach that self-actualization where they fulfill that need to achieve their full potential. But if you just think about the scriptures that we've been reading and talking about what, what is God's plan for us to fulfill our purposes. You see, all you have to do to realize that money and fame will not bring fulfillment is just go through the checkout aisle at the store. Look at all the, the, the magazines there and these people who have more money than they know what to do with, more fame than, than seems good for anybody to have. And they, the tabloids aren't about how pure bliss they're having. It's about how many marriages are falling apart and how much uh, overdoses and, and suicide attempts and, and all of this stuff. Why? Because those things don't achieve it. Even secular psychologists look and... And they don't say, you know what, you'll be happy when you have so much money you don't know what to do with it. No, fulfillment, true happiness, comes when you fulfill your purpose. What is your purpose? What is your purpose? You and I were created to have relationship with God. He has called us 
And there is very little. Even secular psychology over and over and over discovers that the most content, the most fulfilled, the most happy people are those who serve others. Ephesians chapter 3, 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. God's goal is to achieve abundantly above all that we ask or think in our life. That is his goal. He has called us to a life of purpose. That purpose is beyond ourselves. So many people are afraid of what God's call might be. Let me just, just, that is one of the silliest fears. People think, well, what if, what if he calls me to Africa? What if he calls me to do this? What if I'm, what if you are? You know, I spent every summer on mission trips from the age of 11 until I was 22, and then I think when I was 23, I moved to the mission field for five years. I've been to uh, countless places in Mexico, Bolivia, Venezuela, Botswana, uh, Cuba, um, some places in Europe. And you know what? I went, I went to villages in the Darien jungle where like National Geographic type things met with missionaries. I, I met a missionary who was lived for a couple of years in a tent. They woke up one morning and a rat had had its babies in his wife's hair. Okay? Like, some of your guys go, oh no, God, do you want to know something? They were some of the most happy people I've ever met. They were loving it. Like, he's like, guess what? Now, listen, you hear the part about the rat in her hair. They had also seen the dead raised. They had seen people walk on water. He, I'm talking to him. He said, there's not a single miracle in the New Testament that we have not seen out here in the jungle. He said, we are fulfilling God's call in our life. Now, we think about their story, and we, it, you know, I, I could never have a rat. Oh, my goodness, if a rat was to crawl on me while I was sleeping. The point is, when they were fulfilling their purpose, those things became auxiliary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that happened. Ha ha. But... Did I, did I tell you about the little girl who was raised from the dead? Yeah, you, you want to hear the story? So one of the times, there was more than one where the, there, someone was raised from the dead, but they had a, um, a baby that was born premature in their village. 
Now, they were seven hours by bus from the nearest hospital. And when I say by bus, this is a bus going down a gravel road like, like this and just a mess. So the baby is born, is barely alive. They get to the bus and they start the seven-hour trip to the hospital. The baby dies on the way. The church member prays for the baby. The baby's raised from the dead. Dies again. She prays for the baby, raised from the dead. She gets to the hospital, hands over the baby. They start working on the baby. They come out and say, we're sorry. She passed. The, the church member goes in, prays for the baby, raises the baby from the dead in front of the doctors, and then they finish and send home the baby healthy. And there were other stories. Now, I, I tell that story because as they fulfilled their purpose, there was a content. They, those, those other things became auxiliary. When you fulfill the purpose that God has called you to, Whatever discomforts along the way. The Bible says that, oh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the verse right now. It talks about that he gives us the desires of our heart. Now, a lot of us think, well, that means if I want a Ferrari, I'm going to get a Ferrari. But what if it means he plants in us the desires of our heart? He gives us the desires of our heart. When, when I used to go on, on, on my summer trips and, and, and went to the, the Darien jungle, that particular trip, I remember sleeping on a church bench that was from my elbow to my wrist wide. And it would rain and the water would go right through the entire floor of the, the, the church. So you couldn't sleep on the floor. You had to sleep up. So I, I had a sleeping bag on a bench that wide, slept the whole night. And I remember, like, the sense of accomplishment I had in the morning when I had, like, not fallen off. And being excited. And somebody says, well, why would you want that? You know, I believe God gave me the desire of my heart. I desired to go and live an adventure to bring the gospel to someplace new. Now, today, I don't necessarily have a desire to go home and lay on a bench and try again. But I'll tell you what, when that was a part of what I was called to do, man, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. We don't need to fear God's purpose for our life. We don't need to fear those things because God gives us the desire of our heart. And if you are called to the Darien jungle or the African savanna or some place that might seem less than ideal, God will give you the desire to achieve that. And you're going to look at that and it's going to be the most exciting thing. Why? Because you 
It is your purpose. Proverbs 9, 4 and 6, through 6 in message says, Are you confused about life? Don't worry what's going on. Don't know what's going on. Come with me, oh come, have dinner with me. This is wisdom speaking. So hey, God says, hey, are you confused? Man, come, seek me. James 4, 7 says, if we desire wisdom, we ask of the Lord and he is faithful to give it to us. I have five minutes to close. A few starter points. Love God passionately. Acts 17, 26 says, And he made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and he determined that their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they may seek the Lord. We were created to seek him. That is a purpose we all have in common. All of us. You were created to seek him. If you want to increase the fulfillment in your life, one way to do that is to do that for which you were created, which is to seek God. He desires relationship with you. Philippians 3.10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. As I said before, another way of fulfilling our identity and finding purpose is to serve others. 1 Timothy 6.8 says, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give and willing to share storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now, it's interesting. When you and I read that verse, eternal, it says that they may have eternal life. A lot of us think of life after death, eternal simply in duration. But that word again is sozo. It's salvation. It's complete, whole life. Other translations say true life. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may live a complete life. Psalms 112 well, yeah, Psalms 112, 5 through 6, message says, The good person is generous and lends lavishly. No shuffling or stumbling around for this one, but a sterling and solid and lasting reputation, unfazed by rumor and gossip, heart ready, trusting in God, spirit firm, unperturbed, ever blessed, relaxed among enemies. They lavish gifts on the floor, a generosity that goes on and on and on, an honored life, a beautiful How many of you want that? That's what I want. No shuffling around or stumbling around for this one, but a sterling and solid and lasting reputation. Unfazed by rumor and gossip. Heart ready, trusting in God, spirit firm, unperturbed, ever blessed, relaxed 
among enemies. How many of you does that phrase just jump out? Relaxed in a minute. The Bible talks about going through the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death and fearing no evil. You know, being separate, set apart, holy, that's what empowers us to be in the same situation, to be among our enemies. We're not worried about the gossip and whatever that's going around. To walk through the valley of the shadow of the death and fear no evil. That's what it means to be set apart and holy and different. That your identity and purpose comes from something different than everybody else. And so you can be gossiped about, maligned, but it doesn't hit you in your identity. That's not who you are. What they say does not define who you are. Romans 12.2 says, Do not copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. It says, don't, I'm going to read that one more time. Don't copy the behavior of the world and the customs of this world. In other words, trying to do things the way the world is going to do it, that's not going to bring better results. It says, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then, when you've allowed God to change the way you think, you will learn to know God's will for you. Knowing God's will, understanding his purpose, and that is good and pleasing and perfect. We want it said of us, when we have finished, like it was said of David, said, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. Did David live a perfect life? Not at all. He made mistakes. I've made mistakes. You've made mistakes. But when it was all said and done, what did they say about him? He had served his generation by the will of God. That's what I want to be said of me. That's what I want to be said of each of you. That we served our generation according to God's will. We were fulfilled accomplishing what God has called us to do. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray a blessing on every person here. I pray that you would help each and every one of us to grow in our understanding of your purpose and call for our life. Lord, I pray that we would seek fulfillment not in the things that the world tells us will bring fulfillment, but in knowing and understanding your purpose for our lives. Lord, I thank you that you are speaking to the hearts of people here, reminding them of the things that you have placed 
in them, the callings that you have given them. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. If you're here today and you know that your sins are forgiven, that you're right with God, I want to ask you to raise your hand. You know it. Awesome. The Bible says know that you have salvation. If you're here or if you're there watching us and you don't know, I mean, you hope perhaps, but you don't know that you are forgiven, that you're right with God. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, you will be saved. That means saved from the sin that separated you from God. That means right with Him, forgiven, and on your way to heaven. If that's you, if you're here, if you're there, with every eye closed just for a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand right now. Just lift your hand if you say, that's me. I want to know that I'm forgiven. I see a hand, and there may be others who are watching. So we're all going to pray together. Are you ready? Just repeat after me. Say, dear God, I believe you sent Jesus to die for my sin. I accept your forgiveness, and I make you the Lord of my life. I believe that he rose from the dead with victory over Satan. Thank you for forgiving me. I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, if that was you, please let us know. We would love to hear from you. You can send us a private message or put a comment in the videos you're watching right now. We will get a gift to you, an electronic download of a book that, that you can use to learn more and to grow more. If you're here in person and raised your hand, please come on down front. We have physical copies of that book we'd like to give you and get to know you better. God bless. All right.